It is with considerable concern that we set the time of the 2018 Doomsday Clock. As of today, it is two minutes to midnight. Hey, there's a great way to start your day. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the From Pacifica with you. Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM here in LA. Up in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast and Queso in Cottage Grove. And Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI in Maui, Hawaii on KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, in Palinville, New York on WLPP, in Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, in Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, in uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day, as long as there is a globe. On the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, amongst other fine affiliates, both terrestrial and internet. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today at 2 minutes to midnight. More on that in a moment, because uh, Liz Power of uh, Media Matters, who monitor this sort of thing, lets us know today on Twitter that, quote, Fox and Friends mentioned the term secret society Over 20 times on Tuesday and Wednesday, but now that the text message shows it was a joke, silence from Fox and Friends, not one mention of secret society, secret societies on today's show, not a correction, not a clarification, nothing. And like it almost never happened. Like it almost never happened. Now, if you only get your media from the broadcast, you probably have no idea what the hell that's about, this secret society's nonsense, because we haven't talked about it. But over the past two days, Republicans have been going on and on and their media tools at places like Fox News uh, about uh, Senator Ron Johnson, who talked about that there were uh, texts suggesting text messages suggesting that the FBI had some sort of a secret society to take down Donald Trump. And it turns out that the uh, text message in question was clearly a joke between two FBI agents. Obviously a joke. If you read it, ABC News finally was able to get at to break the big news after we got off air yesterday of this uh, of this uh, text message. And of course, it's clearly nothing. Not that you would know that, however, if you were part of the 
the not just the right wing media, but those who follow it. I mean, if you ever go into do you ever uh, go into right wing Twitter? <laughs> I try not to. It's a fever swamp. It's a fever swamp. It's a cesspool. It is people who are so wildly, insanely brainwashed and brain addled. It doesn't matter. We could give them all the facts in the world that we wanted. It doesn't matter. Their brains are mush. At this point, I mean, literally, if you read this stuff, it is absolutely insane. It is Looney Tunes. And the fact that secret society, there is no secret society at the FBI, or if it is, I guess it's still a secret. But the fact <laughs> that uh, that it has been you know, clearly shown to be a joke, they won't talk about that. Or if they do, it won't matter. They will still think for, uh, from now on until forevermore that there is a secret society at the FBI and that Robert Mueller, who is a lifetime Republican, appointed by a, a lifetime Republican after the Republican president of the United States fired a uh, lifetime Republican, uh, James Comey of the FBI. It doesn't matter. You can tell them anything you want. As far as they're concerned, there is a huge conspiracy to take down the president of the United States and no actual facts are ever going to change that in their mind. Yeah. And it's I, extremely disturbing because these Republican congressmen and senators like Ron Johnson are are fanning the flames of this and, yep. and making it even worse when he really, I am sure, should have known better. Now, not that Republicans in this case are the only problems. Democrats have a lot of problems, too, and their own obsessions with that investigation by Robert Mueller with, uh, you know, whatever, if anything, happened between Trump and Russia in the 2016 election, they are equally obsessed with that. And meantime, ignoring the fact that, yes, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists says we are two minutes from midnight as of today. I'll get to that in a second, because I don't want to to uh, miss the fact that, Desi Doyen, you will be returning a oh, little yes. bit later with the latest Green News report where we have, I, I guess, the first major city in the world to completely just about completely run out of water. Yeah. Entirely. No yep. more water. Major city. Brave new world. Uh, that's just some of the good news you can look forward to uh, with Desi Doyne's uh, latest Green News report. Um, that and uh, Trump undermining the rule of law for all sorts of new things. But there is some good news there, at least coming out of California. We'll get all uh, to all of that in a moment. But... Yeah, not that, you know, Republicans imaginary secret societies at the FBI and Democrats speculation about what special counsel Robert Mueller may or may not be looking at or may or may not do at some time in the future or, you know, which team won or lost politically in the weekend's partial shutdown of the U.S. government. Not that those things aren't wildly important enough to cover 24-7 on just about every single so-called news outlet in the nation. But uh, maybe it's just me, but the threat of human extinction in the blink of an eye due to the ongoing and still increasing threats of nuclear war or, yes, even the longer term, but also increasing threat to human survival thanks to climate change. Those uh, seem to be important as well. But I don't know. Like I say, maybe it's just me. Days after Donald Trump took the oath of office back in 2017, as you may recall, just over one year ago, 
The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists reset their infamous, some might say notorious, doomsday clock, moving it forward by 30 seconds to two and a half minutes to midnight, in part because of destabilizing comments and threats from America's then new commander-in-chief. One year later, Lawrence Krauss and Robert Rosner of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists write for an op-ed in today's Washington Post, we are moving the clock forward again by 30 seconds due to the failure of President Trump and other world leaders to deal with looming threats of nuclear war and climate change. Yes, the symbolic doomsday clock notched still closer to the end of humanity on Thursday, according to the Washington Post. Hey, great way to start your day. You're welcome. As the bulletin scientists moved it ahead by another 30 seconds after what the organization uh, president, Rachel Bronson, described as the group's grim assessment of the state of geopolitical affairs. To call the world's nuclear situation dire is to understate the danger and its immediacy. We considered the ossified state of arms control negotiations and non-proliferation agreements, as well as new testing undertaken by North Korea, nuclear exercises built into Russia's military plans, and an enhanced commitment to nuclear weapons in Pakistan, India, and China. We considered at length the lack of predictability in how the United States is thinking about the future and future use of its own nuclear weapons and unpredictability that it is embodied in statements and tweets by the President of the United States. That was Bulletin President Rachel Bronson. The Bulletin, which includes 15 Nobel laureates on its board, now believes, quote, the world is not only more dangerous now than it was a year ago, it is as threatening as it has ever been since World War II. That, according to Bulletin officials Lawrence Krauss and Robert Rosner in that op-ed in The Washington Post, they write, in fact, the doomsday clock is as close to midnight today as it was in 1953 when Cold War fears perhaps reached their highest level. Well, that's not comforting at all. Lawrence Krauss, chair of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist Board of Sponsors, underscored that assessment at today's announcement. Today, the danger of some sort of nuclear catastrophe is greater than it was during the Cold War. And most people are blissfully unaware of this danger. The Bolton's clock now stands at two minutes to midnight, which I want to emphasize is as close as it has ever been to midnight in the 71-year history of the clock. The danger of nuclear conflagration is not the only reason the clock has been moved forward, as my colleagues have described. This danger looms at a time when there's been a loss of trust in political institutions, in the media, in science, and in facts themselves, all of which exacerbate the difficulty of dealing with the real problems the world faces, and which threaten to undermine the ability of governments to effectively deal with these problems. Lawrence Krauss also, not unlike me, had a few choice words for those in the media who seem to have lost sight of what Americans and indeed the world need to know about even under or perhaps especially under this particular president of the United States. At the highest levels of U.S. government, great effort and expense of time has been devoted to debates and concerns over things like an imaginary wall designed to keep out what many people feel is an imaginary threat. 
Yet the very real threats of nuclear war and climate change are not being dealt with seriously at the same time. The media too plays a role here, focusing on political infighting in Congress or in salacious news about scandals in Congress, Hollywood or the White House, which distract from reporting on the significant long-term threats that help guide public interest away from serious discussion about these threats. The last time the doomsday clock advanced this far, the Washington Post notes in their coverage today, the United States had just tested its first thermonuclear device and the Soviet Union, remember them, had tested a a hydrogen bomb. The decision to move the clock forward was motivated largely by the bulletin's sense of looming nuclear peril. But the danger is compounded, they say, by humanity's continued inaction on climate change, as well as somewhat vaguer concerns about unchecked artificial intelligence, the spread of disinformation, and the public's eroding trust in institutions that could help to keep these threats at bay. So will any of this help to focus the U.S. and the world's media on threats that actually matter to every citizen of planet Earth? And how does the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists make these determinations in the first place anyway? Here to offer some insight on that is a man who knows, or certainly should, Stephen Schwartz is a nuclear weapons policy analyst and former executive director and publisher of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, keeper of that infamous doomsday clock. He's also former editor of the Non-Proliferation Review and current adjunct professor at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. Stephen Schwartz, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Hi, Brad. Thank you. Glad to be here. I've got a bunch of stuff I had been hoping to discuss with you today uh, before this doomsday clock stuff concerning a a disturbing new report out of the Pentagon concerning a new policy for U.S. uh, first strike use of nuclear weapons, which seems, frankly, impossible to fathom, uh, as well as about this uh, recent false incoming missile alert sent in Hawaii a week or so ago that left that state's residents in panic for nearly 40 minutes. But let me start uh, with today's announcement about the doomsday clock. Uh, The last time you were on the show, Stephen, I think you had predicted that the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists may move the clock forward again this year. But uh, very quickly, can you give us an idea about who these folks are and how the clock even came to be originally, I think, back in 1947, as I recall? Sure. Well, the the origin of the clock is actually uh, kind of mundane. When the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists started uh, in 1945, right after World War II, it was essentially a newsletter, uh, Mm -hmm. and it became very popular. And by 1947, it was popular enough that they wanted to transition it to becoming a full-size magazine. And if you have a magazine, you need a cover. And if you have a cover, you need to put something on it. (laughs) So one of the people uh, involved in the uh, uh, bulletin uh, went to his wife, uh, an artist, a woman named Martil Langsdorf, uh, who had provided some graphics for the bulletin over time, and said, uh, we need a cover. You know, can you you design something for us? And she hit upon the idea of of a clock you know, sort of a countdown to zero hour uh, as being appropriate for the, uh, for the times. And she was responsible for setting the hands, the original setting of the hands, 
um, at seven minutes to midnight because she thought it looked artistically appropriate. There was no thought <laughs> at that point to moving the minute hand or exactly what that might convey, but simply that, you know, that time was ticking and that, uh, you know, if we weren't careful, we might be approaching uh, midnight, midnight being the, the proverbial doomsday. So that's where the clock originally came from. And then a couple of years later, uh, after the first uh, uh, Soviet atomic test in 1949, uh, the editors realized that you could move the hand to uh, denote how far away or how close we were getting to doomsday. And uh, ever since then, the uh, editors of the magazine, uh, the members of the board of sponsors, who, as you indicated, include a number of Nobel laureates, mm-hmm. uh, members of what is now the... Um, the Science and Security Board that oversees the journal uh, get together uh, usually a couple times a year and talk about the state of the world and make a determination as to whether or not the hand should move and if they should, uh, you know, what, what the setting should be. Uh, it's moved back and forth over time. This is the closest that it's ever been, as it was in 1953 when it hit two minutes. The furthest away was uh, at 17 minutes to midnight in 1991. Uh, reflecting the end of the Cold War, the uh, uh, the creation of the uh, START Treaty that uh, sharply reduced U.S. and uh, Soviet uh, strategic nuclear weapons, and a general feeling at that point that you know we were moving very much in the right direction. Obviously, the people at the Bulletin today and many people around the world feel that we're moving very much in the wrong direction. So the clock reflects that, but the clock doesn't you know it doesn't anticipate things; it reacts to things. A lot of people today. On Twitter, we're saying, you know, this is ridiculous. How can it be, you know, this dangerous? You know, what about the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962? Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting one. The clock actually didn't react to, to the Cuban Missile Crisis because it was over so quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, did it, move, it did move the following year, and it actually moved a little bit further away from midnight thanks to the uh, passage uh, and the ratification uh, of the uh, Limited Test Ban Treaty, which ended all nuclear weapons testing in the atmosphere. So it's an interesting uh, and obviously symbolic uh, arbiter of global dangers. And since about, I think, 2007 now, it also includes global warming in the mix, so Mm -hmm. it's not just about nuclear dangers. Um, It is scientific in the sense that many scientists are involved in discussions about where to set the hands, but nobody would ever claim that is a, you know, a precision scientific instrument. Well, uh, what should we then, as Americans, uh, take from the decision today to move the clock? And it doesn't always move, right? Some years it, it stays exactly where it was the previous year? Absolutely. It's, it's moved something like, uh, well, they've got a timeline on their website, but mm-hmm. it's something like 17 or 18 times that it's moved over 70-plus years. So obviously it doesn't move all the time. And in fact, if it moved too frequently, I think it would lose some of its power. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I can tell you when I was responsible for the bulletin uh, in, after 9-11, uh, people were calling and writing, even visiting our office, you know, wanting to know where the hands would be set because they felt that that would tell them something about the state of the world. And, you know, we had to explain at that time that, you know, as horrendous and uh, as, as, as 9-11 was, that we wanted to uh, the clock doesn't, as um, uh, somebody said at the event today, the clock doesn't react to any single event, mm-hmm. although I suppose if there were a, you know, a, a nuclear weapon used somewhere in the world, that would probably be, be the exception to the rule. Mm-hmm. But at least to this point, it hasn't done that. 
So we wanted to see back then, you know, what, what was going to happen. What would 9-11, apart from all the carnage and everything of that day, what would it result in? What would, what would happen after that? Mm-hmm. And so we ended up moving the hands of the clock in 2002. Uh, I think it was four or five months after 9-11, and that was one of the reasons why, but there were many other things going on then, too, including the Bush administration's antipathy toward arms control, manifested by you know, scrapping the anti-ballistic missile treaty, for example, and, and some other things as well. Um, but you know, generally, I mean, the, the, what, what we should take away from today, I think, is that uh, the world is becoming a more dangerous place, uh, a more unstable place. Is it, as, as somebody said today at the Bulletin, as bad as it's ever been? I don't know about that. I mean, there are far fewer operational nuclear weapons in the world today. Uh, actually, I'm sorry, take that back. <laughs> since, I was going to say since 1953. There are far fewer nuclear weapons in the world today than there were during most of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, we have far more countries that have nuclear weapons today than in 1953 when the hands were last at, at, um, at two minutes to midnight. So I think the, the scale of destruction that could be unleashed is certainly lower. On the other hand, we have more countries that have fingers on, you know, proverbial buttons, and we also have, uh, you know, the, the possibility of, therefore, you know, more accidents happening and so forth. So I think it's, you know, the, the likelihood of nuclear weapons being used, whether by accident or design, I think is higher, certainly, than, you know, probably at any time since the Cold War ended. Uh, albeit, you know, if that happens, it's not going to necessarily mean the end of the world. Has there ever been um, a case, and i, I got to get to a break here momentarily, uh, but has there ever been a case where a world leader has been as, uh, take your pick, unstable, unpredictable, uh, as, as a Donald Trump who, who had access to nuclear weapons? Is there even any question or debate about that? Uh, well, unstable and predictable in the moment where we know about it as, as it's happening, no. On the other hand, you know, Joseph Stalin was, you know, paranoid and, uh, you know, certainly a dangerous individual. Uh, you know, Mao Zedong was probably not somebody that you necessarily wanted to get terribly close to. Both of them obviously had control over nuclear weapons for, you know, quite a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean, I, there certainly have been, uh, you know, leaders that uh, have had, you know, nuclear access or, you know, had an interest perhaps in using nuclear weapons. Uh, but I don't think there's anybody, been anybody quite like Donald Trump who's, who speaks so openly uh, about these dangers and, and glibly, frankly, some of the time. And, uh, you know, not only uh, does that, but doesn't know uh, much about the responsibility that he's trusted with and, and you know, much about what the weapons would do. And worse than that, doesn't really care to know any more. Um, so, you know, I think he's treating, you know, in his threats toward Kim Jong-un in North Korea, he seems to be treating the situation sort of like, uh, you know, a business deal where he will harass his opponent, where he'll insult his opponent in order to get the best possible deal, in this case for the United States, but nuclear weapons and nuclear deterrence don't don't work like that. And of course, you're on a world stage. You're not simply in New York City trying to acquire a piece of real estate. So, uh, you know, for all of those reasons, this is you know incredibly problematic, and it doesn't show signs of getting any better. And uh, also, very quickly before the break here, uh, what should I, you know, if if the clock itself is not a uh, a scientific instrument, but rather a symbolic one, and its you know movement should concern 
the peoples of the world. What what should I uh, specifically, as a member of the media, you heard um, uh, Robert Krauss there, ta- Lawrence Krauss, uh, talking about that. Um, what are your thoughts on that? What should, what should we in the media take from uh, today's announcement? Uh, I think that it would be very helpful if the media would, would cover these issues uh, more closely, um, not just you know as a matter of, oh, the president said this or somebody said that, but really look in detail uh, in, the, in the way that I think, for example, newspapers did in the 1980s during the early years of the Reagan administration about what nuclear policies actually are and what, you know, what it would mean and what would happen if these weapons you know, actually went off. You know, this isn't an abstract, abstract threat anymore. It's, it's absolutely real, and I think the public needs to be more educated about these issues, and frankly, I think a number of reporters probably do um, you know, as well. But I think having more and more consistent coverage about these, so it's not just, you know, crisis to crisis, but there's a lot of, you know, basic information that people could, you know, convey. I think when the Cold War ended, a lot of people assumed, because of that, that the nuclear weapons went away, and I think they were probably justified in part because the issue disappeared off the front pages of newspapers. It wasn't really discussed anymore uh, because it wasn't news, but, you know, the reality is that the weapons continue to exist, the policies that envision their use continue to exist, and obviously more, more and more countries acquired, you know, nuclear capabilities over the last 25 years or so. So, um, you know, the problem has never really gone away, even as the total number of weapons in the world has come down because the bloated U.S. and Russian arsenals have managed to, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we've managed to decrease them both through unilateral measures on both sides, but also through um, bilateral arms control negotiations. Um, that unfortunately appears to be grinding to a halt, and um, that's what we're going to talk about next. I think. Yep, we are. Let me take a quick break here. Speaking with Stephen Schwartz, nuclear weapons policy analyst, uh, longtime executive director and publisher of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Uh, we will take a quick break here because uh, I want to talk about this, uh, as you note, this nuclear posture review by the Pentagon, which I find more than a bit chilling. It calls for a nuclear response by the U.S. to even cyber attacks for the first time. And uh, so I want to get your take on that and on what happened recently in Hawaii with that false alarm and what, if anything, we may uh, be able to learn from it or should be able to learn from it. Quick break and we're back with Stephen Schwartz. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. You took the bomb. You took the bomb. You took the bomb. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com speaking with Stephen Schwartz, nuclear weapons policy analyst and former executive director and publisher of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, who today 
moved the doomsday clock 30 seconds forward to two minutes to midnight. Well, uh, related to all of the above, a, uh, a New York Times report from last week notes that a newly drafted United States nuclear strategy that has been sent to President Trump for approval would permit the use of nuclear weapons to respond to a wide range of devastating but non-nuclear attacks on American infrastructure, including what current and former government officials described as the most crippling kind of cyber attacks. For decades, the paper notes, American presidents have threatened first use of nuclear weapons against enemies in only very narrow and limited circumstances, such as in response to the use of biological weapons against the United States. But this new document is the first to expand that to include attempts to destroy wide-reaching infrastructure like a country's power grid or communication communications that would be most vulnerable to cyber weapons. The draft document called the Nuclear Posture Review was written at the Pentagon and is being reviewed by the White House even as we speak. Its final release is expected in the coming weeks and represents a new look at the U.S. nuclear strategy, I might add a new disturbing look to the uh, (laughs) U.S. nuclear strategy. Stephen Schwartz, um, a response, a nuclear response to a cyber attack. Is is this assessment a surprise to those like you in the uh, nuclear policy community? It's something of a surprise. Uh, During the George W. Bush administration, there was some talk of uh, potentially expanding the use of nuclear weapons, but not to this degree. I mean, it was in the context of we would develop, you know, a low-yield nuclear weapon or we would develop a nuclear weapon that could penetrate underground to destroy hidden bunkers and so forth. Uh, But to to expand the contingencies under which we would consider using nuclear weapons to include responding to non-nuclear attacks upon the United States, specifically, as you mentioned, a cyber attack, or a weapon or an attack involving conventional weapons that results in mass casualties, I think is is really problematic. I mean, it's already relatively unrealistic that we would con, you know consider using the nuclear weapons that we have stashed in Europe in the event that Russia decides to become the Soviet Union again and do more than you know invade Ukraine, but actually go after the heart uh, of NATO. I mean, the weapons are there. We plan and prepare to use them, but, a lot of people in and outside of NATO don't think that that's very realistic, in part because we don't want to blow up nuclear weapons in Europe to save our allies. But to talk about threatening, let alone using nuclear weapons, if we were attacked, you know, uh, cybernetically, uh, that just that's just truly strange. I mean, under those uh, under those particular scenarios, what Russia did in the election in 2016, and what it may in fact be doing still today you know, could be caused for unleashing nuclear weapons. So we're really going to be sending nuclear fireballs over to Moscow uh, because of what they're doing, or if, you know, North Korea takes down instead of Sony, but takes down our banking system, we're going to lob a couple of nukes at Pyongyang. I mean, that just, that just doesn't seem realistic uh, at all. It may make people inside the Trump administration and people inside the nuclear bureaucracy who are still trying to figure out what to do with these weapons post-Cold War mm-hmm feel like they're being useful, uh, but I think it's actually tremendously counterproductive, not only because we don't need nuclear weapons to do that at all. We have 
conventional capabilities that would be more than adequate to the task. But we're sending a very clear signal to every country in the world that has or wants nuclear weapons, hey, this is what you should be thinking about doing with your nuclear arsenal. Mm. And if they were to adopt our posture, it would come back to haunt us in a really big way. The uh, report, while it, while you say it doesn't seem realistic, Stephen Schwartz, the draft document itself says we must look reality in the eye and see the world as it is, not as we wish it to be. This new initiative uh, goes on to say that it, it uh, realigns our nuclear policy with a realistic assessment of the threats we face today and the uncertainties regarding the future security environment. So... Uh, do you get the sense or even have any inside knowledge here as to whether this is coming from the department? Is this coming from the Department of Defense itself, or is this some sort of request from Donald Trump, who has spoken in the past about expanding our nuclear arsenal? Do you have any read on that at all? I doubt very much that Donald Trump has read the nuclear posture review. He was over at the Pentagon last week to be briefed on it. Uh, you may remember the last time that he was at the Pentagon to talk about nuclear weapons. He was shown a chart uh, showing the size of the nuclear stockpile mm -hmm. over time and indicated he had a great interest in having as many nuclear weapons as we had at the peak of the Cold War, which was 1967, and about over, th over 31,000 nuclear weapons. And right, right. and that's, that. that's why I'm That's when Secretary Tillerson called him an effing moron. So right. <laughs> uh, uh, possibly in response to that comment, but certainly in response to something that happened at that meeting. So I don't think Trump has read this document. I don't think he knows. Remember, he didn't even know what the nuclear triad was back during the campaign in 2016. Right, but, so, but what, I think um, what I think I'm getting at, uh, Stephen, is this a response to, for example, that meeting last year? Is this, you know, the, the Department of Defense doing this at the request of the president of a sort? Or is this the department itself saying this is needed for our defense or this is needed for our defense contractors, but I'm trying to figure out where this is coming from. Is it coming from Trump or is it coming from our, our military-industrial state, so to speak? It's both. It's coming from the president in the sense that he signed early on last year a, a memorandum that took us back to the 1980s that insisted that we needed to have peace through strength and required that we have maximum flexibility with regard to our nuclear weapons, which is really, a, frankly, a very dangerous thing to say because it gives us its carte blanche to do you know, anything that we want with regard to nuclear weapons. If you say that you want to have a sufficient capability or an adequate capability, that's one thing. But to demand and request maximum strategic flexibility opens the doors to anything and everything. And there are people within the nuclear bureaucracy uh, in the Pentagon, at U.S. Strategic Command in Omaha, Air Force Global Strike Command in Louisiana and our nuclear weapons laboratories that have been looking for missions and things to do with nuclear weapons since mm. the Cold War ended, including, by the way, potentially resuming testing of nuclear weapons in Nevada, which we haven't done since 1992. And I think they see in this president somebody who is willing to give them an enormous amount of latitude in order to uh, you know, fulfill their, their wildest fantasies mm. here. So with regard to, for example, using nuclear weapons, you know, against cyber attacks, it may seem like that's a good idea to them, but one might ask, well, wait a minute, why wouldn't we want to develop and deploy cyber capabilities of our own? In fact, we have done that. We've mm -hmm. done it against uh, Iran, and we had uh, plans to do much more. Uh, depending on you know how things had turned out with the uh, with the Stuxnet virus, so uh, you know that's obviously 
extremely classified, and I can't go into any detail. I don't have a security clearance about it, but it's something that we are capable of doing. But it just seems incredible that we would, you know, the first thing we would do, uh, you know, if we were attacked uh, uh, via cyber warfare is to start thinking about and I guess not actually lobbying nuclear weapons. Now, they may say, well, this is a really good deterrent because it lets our adversaries know if you even thinking about doing that, this is what's going to be coming back at you. But mm-hmm. frankly, it's, you know, it's really re- unrealistic. It's like saying, uh, you know, okay, well, uh, you know, you, uh, you broke into uh, my house and, uh, you know, stole my television set, uh, so I'm basically going to use dynamite and blow up your entire house. Yes. That doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, there's, there's other, maybe not the best analogy, but I'm thinking off on, yeah. on my feet here. Uh, but there are, there are things that we can do short of nuclear war uh, that I think, you know, would be much more effective. And let's face it, I think we're operating still here under the fallacy of the last move, which is, okay, somebody does something to us, we're going to use nuclear weapons, you know, and boom, that's it, we're done. No, not necessarily, particularly if the people that you're using nuclear weapons against have nuclear weapons of their own. They yep. are more than capable of responding, and then what do you do? So, you know, I, I'm frankly more worried about this idea that we need to match this capability that the Russians are developing, um, which they're developing, by the way, out of weakness, because they do not have the kind of conventional capabilities we have, where they're saying if they get into a fight with us, and the fight is an existential one where their security, the security of Russia, not of anything else, is directly threatened and they have no way out of it, that they will consider using nuclear weapons in order to send a message to us that if we do not cease and desist, that there are going to be more nuclear weapons flying at us and that would be and, a very bad thing. And, and we're, as you note, uh, Stephen, giving them the, uh, giving them the message that, uh, yeah, you can do that um, in, in the event of something like a cyber attack. If you think that the U.S. has attacked you uh, with cyber warfare, uh, we were going to use nuclear weapons in that case, so I guess you guys can too. Um, right. Which, which these, these things these things hurt us hurt us now and will hurt us more in the future than we can hurt other people. It's the only weapon in the world that poses an existential threat to the United States. Sure, a cyber attack against our electrical infrastructure or air traffic control network that would be horrible, obviously. But it's not going to end the United States. Nuclear weapons on U.S. cities will cause severe and probably irreparable damage to the United States for many, many years, if not forever, depending on the scale of the attack. Nothing comes close to that. Speaking of which, uh, there was the um, the errant alert that went out to uh, Hawaii residents and, and tourists a week or so ago, uh, all caps on their cell phone, ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii, seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. It was a full 38 minutes before the notice was put out that indeed this was a false alarm, thankfully. But, Stephen, h- how did something like that even happen in the first place? Were you surprised that uh, that it could happen at all, to be frank, with your uh, years of experience in this field? Uh, I'm not really surprised that it could happen. Uh, there are many, many opportunities for what are called normal accidents to happen in very complicated systems, particularly where people are involved. So, no, it was surprising to me. I was actually in Milan, of all places, in a hotel room, and I just happened to flip open Twitter to check something, and a colleague of mine who lives in Honolulu posted a copy of that text alert and said something like, 
hmm, or uh-oh, or something to that effect. <laughs> right. And so I'm looking at this in real time and thinking, geez, I hope that's a mistake. <laughs> you know, it turns out obviously that it was. Um, so, no, but that doesn't, that doesn't surprise me at all. In fact, we've, there have been false alarms uh, with the early warning system before. Uh, in 1971, there's what's known now as the great uh, uh, emergency broadcast uh, system alert scare, where the uh, a teletype operator at the North American Aerospace Defense Command, you know, if you saw the movie War Games, mm-hmm. those folks that are monitoring the radars and the satellites to look for incoming missiles, they tested the early warning system regularly, and he was supposed to send out a message to all radio and television stations, basically you know, alerting them that the system was working. Instead, he sent out an actual alert, and it caused huge commotion and panic around the country, and, and also for a similar amount of time, about 45 minutes or so, till they got it under control, and they couldn't find the right code to, to cancel the alert, just like they couldn't do in this case. Right. Um, and so it's happened, it's happened before. In this case, what happened was that they were testing the, the system. Why, did, why, did, why were they testing the system? Hawaii hasn't done this for years. Well, thanks to Donald Trump's uh, intemperate rhetoric and threats against North Korea. North Korea, of course, has been lobbing threats uh, back at us, and it made officials in Hawaii very concerned. So they took what they thought was a prudent step of reactivating this Cold War alert system with sirens and so forth, but augmenting it with Twitter alerts for mm-hmm. the modern day. And uh, they were testing their system just like the poor soul was in 1971. And the guy at the computer or the gal, whoever it was, uh, there was a drop-down menu, and it said something like, you know, test the system or, you know, this is a real alert. And they picked the wrong thing. And then a menu popped up or an alert box popped up and said, are you sure you really want to do this? And because they were convinced that they'd actually picked the right thing rather than right. the wrong thing, they said yes, and the alert went out. And then they had no way to cancel it, and it turns out the governor of Hawaii also didn't have his Twitter password, so he couldn't get on Twitter right away to say, hello, false alarm, don't worry well, about it. Li- so that's been rectified. And, <laughs> and I could sort of understand how that part could happen. What I'm having trouble wrapping my brains around is how it can be that the U.S. itself mm-hmm. did not immediately disabuse the idea of an incoming missile. I mean, this is not 1971. We have much better communications now in theory. Surely there is someone, right. you know, at Central Command who, who could have seen this. If you saw it in Milan, and you know, it seems like someone at Central Command could have, you know, seen this and known right away that it was a false alarm right off the bat and put out the word to that end rather than, you know, this what must have been 38 minutes of sheer panic in the state of Hawaii. I think there was general confusion. This, of course, this was a state alert system. Obviously, the United States maintains the ability through what's known as the emergency alert system right now Mm -hmm. to notify the entire country. In fact, one of the things that's in the the nuclear football, the briefcase that follows the president around 24-7, is information about how to use that system to notify the public about any sort of massive existential threat, whether it's a nuclear attack or, you know, an earthquake or mm-hmm. a tsunami or whatever it is. And so the, the, the federal government has the opportunity to do that for everybody in the country. This was a Hawaii system. People, I understand, at the U.S. Pacific Command at Pearl Harbor knew instantly that this wasn't real. Of course, they were alerted just like everybody else was. They've got their own warning systems and connections to NORAD, and they knew it wasn't right, and I'm sure they were contacting people back in the mainland saying, hey, you know, what's going on here? Uh, but I, apparently the U.S. government did not feel like it was 
the federal government's responsibility to, uh, to, to get involved in this. Uh, for whatever reason, I think they're revisiting that, perhaps. Well, it's, it's only Hawaii. They're not a real state. We know that. You know, they're, they're just barely a notch above Puerto Rico, apparently. I've only got 30 seconds running incredibly late here, Stephen, but uh, last month, uh, Bulletin of Atomic Scientist contributor Jeffrey Lewis uh, wrote an op-ed saying, this is how nuclear war with North Korea would unfold. Uh, aside from the mistake and the panic for citizens in Hawaii, uh, isn't that the real threat here, that uh, this could all unwind with something as simple as a mistaken communication? Uh, yeah, and in fact, in that article, he said what would happen is the president would see that there was this alert, because, of course, he's on Twitter all the time, and call over the aid with the football and say, okay, let's go. We have to launch a, you know, we have to launch a nuclear attack. It's not quite as simple as that, but it is certainly possible, given the, uh, how, how well-connected these systems are, and again, the fact that you know, human beings are fallible, human beings operate these systems and created these systems, that you know, there could be a series of mistakes that end up resulting in the accidental use of nuclear weapons. It would be horrible to think about, but it is not out of the realm of possibility. No, and it seems to me to be uh, as great a danger as any of this uh, right now. Uh, Stephen Schwartz, nuclear weapons policy analyst, former executive director, publisher of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, uh, and uh, adjunct professor at Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. You can follow him on the Twitters, which I recommend particularly next time you get a false alert uh, on your uh, on your <laughs> iPhone. Uh, he can be found at Atomic Analyst. Thank you, Stephen. Always great talking to you. And uh, as I always say, I hope not to talk to you again in the near future. Uh, well, that probably won't happen, but it's a good, good thought. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sir. Okay, uh, quick break, and we are back. You know, uh, nuclear annihilation was not the only reason they moved the uh, doomsday clock to two minutes to midnight today. It's also, as we noted, due to concerns about climate change. And that is next as Desi Doyen joins us for our latest Green News report. Stand by. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. You know, Desi Doyen... I'll have to go back and check. What, what did Stephen uh, Schwartz say? I think he said in, in 2007 the atomic scientists started talking about uh, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists started adding uh, climate change to their consideration for the doomsday clock. Is yeah, that I, what think, he said? I think that's what he said, somewhere around there. All right, because I think we started Green News Report in 2008. So they beat us to that as well, I <laughs> but guess. But not by much. Yeah, and they're one of the few people who have beaten you to that, Desi Doyen. You've been covering this for so many years. Uh, in moving the clock to two minutes to midnight, it was not just because of concerns about nukes. 
they also, as the scientists noted today, <clears throat> had concerns about climate change. Uh, yes, indeed. One of the board members there, Sivan Kartha, was also at the press conference. He's a senior climate scientist at the Stockholm Environment Institute. And this is what he said about climate change and the threat to the world. While the main impetus for this year's forward movement of the clock was the perilous nuclear situation, climate change very much remains a serious and worsening threat. 2017 did not yield encouraging progress. After having plateaued for a few years, global greenhouse gas emissions resumed their stubborn rise. Here in the U.S., the incoming President Trump promptly appointed a cadre of avowed climate denialists to top positions and quickly started reversing existing climate measures. And of course, he also formally declared his intention to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement. In other words, the U.S. President has done his best to follow through on his stated intention of derailing U.S. climate action. And uh, that is now an increasing threat to the world, at least according to these scientists. Uh, yes, and what's also dangerous about this is Climate change is an international security threat because it can mm -hmm. destabilize regimes that yep. have nuclear weapons and make their nuclear weapons more accessible to rebels, for example. And also remember, like places like Pakistan and India, who have been embroiled in a long-term, decades-long border war, mm -hmm. they run out of water, they both have nuclear arms. There's a lot of destabilization that could go on. Yeah, there. that's exactly how we got into this mess in Syria, to be frank. Uh, so keep that in mind as we get to our latest Green News report. We have really reached a point of no return. Cape Town, South Africa is about to become the first major city to run out of water. We've decided to make France a model in the fight against climate change. At Davos, U.S. promotes oil and gas, while France pushes clean energy innovation. Trump's big infrastructure proposal will bypass major environmental laws. Plus, California City becomes the ninth to sue the fossil fuel industry for climate damages. Go California! All of those stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. We are now the number one oil and gas producing nation on the face of the earth. Yep. Thanks, Obama. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, Cape Town is about to run completely out of water? That's correct. Cape Town, South Africa is on the verge of completely running out of water due to an unrelenting extended drought, the worst in more than a century. Cape Town city officials say water rationing has not reduced demand enough. So this week, Cape Town Mayor Patricia DeLille moved up day zero. That's the date when water is expected to run out to April 12th. We have really reached a point of no return. We can no longer ask people to stop wasting water. We now have to force them to stop wasting water. When the water runs out, officials say they will deploy the police and the military to protect water distribution points for four million residents. Is this a picture of what we might be seeing elsewhere in the world in the coming years? Well, that is projected to happen with climate change. The World Resources Institute warned in its water risk report this week that 33 countries will face extremely high water stress by 2040, primarily located in the volatile Middle East. And the 
drought across South Africa is due in part to climate change that has altered weather patterns. According to another new study in the journal Nature Climate Change, even if the world succeeds in meeting the internationally agreed upon target of limiting global warming to no more than two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, they still project that more than a quarter of the planet's land surface will become significantly drier overall. You're always nothing but good cheer, Tess. <laughs> well, here's some more not good cheer. Here in the U.S., E&E News reports that the Trump administration plans to accelerate its deregulation push in its upcoming infrastructure proposal. It'll be framed as saving private developers time and money, but the administration will propose to speed up the permitting process for large infrastructure projects by eliminating major environmental regulation requirements like the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the Endangered Species Act, and the National Environmental Policy Act. Those pesky laws again. A new Harvard study has found deep inequality in Americans' exposure to deadly air pollution. The researchers analyzed Medicare and Medicaid recipients and found that seniors on Medicare and low-income residents who qualify for Medicaid in the United States bear the brunt with a much higher risk of premature death due to air pollution, particularly in minority communities. And if this is based on Medicaid and Medicare numbers, I guess that means... It's costing taxpayers more money in those areas. Indeed it is. And as David Roberts of Vox notes, quote, rolling back air quality regulations does not reduce costs. It merely shifts the costs from industrialists to vulnerable populations. Of course it does. U.S. Energy Secretary Rick Perry was at the World Economic Forum this week, the annual gathering of world leaders in Davos, Switzerland. He was there to push advanced oil and gas drilling technology and U.S. fossil fuel exports. The United States is not just exporting energy. We're exporting freedom. Jesus, really? Yes, really. In contrast, French President Emmanuel Macron promoted his nation's transition to clean energy and its innovations in renewable energy technology as the key to global competitiveness. We've decided to make France a model in the fight against climate change. And that's, for me, a huge advantage in terms of attractiveness and competitiveness. Why? Because you can create a lot of jobs in such a strategy. Wow, France has realized that fighting for the environment is a great way to create jobs. Go figure. Finally, Richmond, California this week became the ninth U.S. city to sue the fossil fuel industry for damages caused by climate change, alleging that the fossil fuel companies knew their product would cause dangerous global warming, misled the public about it for decades, and therefore should be liable for billions of dollars in damages and repairs to its coastal infrastructure from rising sea levels along its 32 miles of shoreline. And Richmond should know how dangerous fossil fuels are. Isn't that where they had that huge Chevron refinery explosion just a few years ago? It is indeed. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Go California. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen, yep. for that latest report on this 
two minutes to doomsday day. <laughs> um, I want to uh, very quickly here. Um, I want to thank those of you who have stopped by bradblog.com slash donate. We are celebrating officially now our 14th anniversary uh, at bradblog.com and here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report. And uh, those who have stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to try and help us continue to, to keep doing this on your public airwaves as long as we can. I want to thank those of you who have stopped by. Roger F. Uh, donated and said, Brad and Desi, if I were on a desert island and could have only one news source, it would be the Bradcast. Aww, Especially, so nice. he says, <clears throat> since the uh, Electoral College election of Orange Doofus, your podcast has helped... Helped me keep my sanity. <laughs> keep on keeping on, he says. Uh, his sanity may be in question, but I thank you very much, uh, Roger, for that support. Also, Roxanne T. in Whittier, California, says, Happy anniversary to my favorite investigative reporters. The Bradcast is my favorite podcast. I don't know how you stay so positive, but it's appreciated. Don't know where she got the idea that we're staying positive at all well, at know. this point. <laughs> uh, I don't feel very positive these days, uh, but I'm glad we can help everyone else not get too depressed, not get too anxious. Yes, press on. Don't stop. Unless they listen to today's show about two minutes to midnight, <laughs> in which case they probably want to jump off a cliff at this point. Uh, but anyway, uh, thank you, Roxanne T. And those of you who have stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do what we try to do every day over your public airwaves. We are going to need a lot more help than just Roger and uh, Roxanne and uh, the other folks. So please consider stopping by to help us continue to do it. What we try to do every day. All right. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, the atomic analyst, Stephen Schwartz, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. Whether you're on a uh, uh, desert island or not, we're glad to have you with us. You can download our shows anytime if you missed any portion of today's program or any other at bradblog.com anytime for free. You can also drop me email if you like to tell us uh, why you're not stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. <laughs> My email address is bradcast at bradblog.com. You can find and follow and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at The Brad Blog. That is it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.